Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Ashley Rinsberg, author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting, Fabrications, and Distortions Radically Alter History, which Daniel Pipes praised by saying, brimming with fascinating, if morbid, detail, Ashley Rinsberg rigorously exposes the dark side of the New York Times, and journalist John Solomon of Just the News called it the best book of the year. Ashley joins us to discuss how the New York Times gets the Mideast wrong and why it matters. Mr. Rinsberg will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Rinsberg. Thank you, Stacy, And um, thank you for everyone for being here today. And of course, to Middle East Forum for extending this gracious invitation. What I want to talk with you about today is essentially the topic that constitutes the subject of my book, The Gray Lady Winked. And that's how false news, false media narratives are created and how they shape the world around us and generally not for the better. So that term I used, false media narratives, is a bit of a clinical version of what we now call fake news. Though in, in polite society, we tend to avoid that latter term, which has been highly politicized. But what we really mean when we're talking about fake news is the media's promulgation of facts, storylines, and ideas that are designed to suit an ideological or interest-driven agenda of some kind. So as you probably all know, there's no lack of examples here, but one arose a few days ago and it's timely and relevant, so that's one we'll use. And that's when last summer, the New York Times reported that Russia was paying the Taliban and other Islamist groups in Afghanistan bounties for the killing of American troops. I mean, that was a pretty alarming charge, especially in the broader context of US-Russia relations at that time, surrounding the election of Donald Trump. But another layer to the story was the claim that Trump knew about these bounties and did nothing about it. That claim took the story from alarming to explosive. I remember thinking to myself, if this is true, this guy, meaning Trump, must be as bad as they say he is. And hearing this report and accepting it as true, you really couldn't come to any other conclusion. And that was precisely the point. But I wanna stop and back up for a moment since this raises an important question. It's one thing for a reporter to make a mistake and that happens as it does with football players, space engineers, school teachers, construction workers, and believe it or not, sometimes even foreign policy experts. The question then is where's the fine line between an innocent mistake and a false media narrative. What I learned from the years of researching writing about false narratives created and promulgated by the New York Times is that the line is not fine at all. In fact, it's as thick as an Israeli shawarma. As an example, one of the most shocking things I uncovered in The Grady Lady Winked, because when I was writing and researching the book, is that the Times, the New York Times' Berlin bureau chief during and leading up to World War II was a Nazi sympathizer. Or really, when given the fact that he acted on these sympathies, we might as well call him a Nazi collaborator. So what does it take to meet that dubious standard? I can tell you it's not just a single article with some fuzzy morality in it. In this case, rather, it was a decade of reporting favorably on history's most monstrous reg regime that earned this individual the distinction. This includes claiming early on that Hitler was motivated by, quote, a lofty, unselfish patriotism. It includes other reporters in the Bureau explicitly excusing anti-Jewish riots in Germany in the 1930s. 
It includes calling the Munich Accords, quote, a freshening breeze across a conference table that meant, quote, peace had finally been achieved. And it included calling the Berlin, uh, Berlin Olympics, which were designed as a Nazi propaganda spectacle, quote, the greatest sporting event in history. And it included the claim, finally, on the eve of the outbreak of the Second World War that of all things, Poland had invaded Germany. Any one of these claims on its own would have been pretty ridiculous, in my opinion, probably yours too. Even at the time, since reporters like William Shirer and Edward Murrow were reporting that the Munich Accords represented the death of peace and that the Olympics were a horrid Nazi spectacle that constituted a stain on Western democracy, Western democracies, which participated fully. But here's the thing is the point about a media narrative is that it takes kind of a network structure. It's various nodes support one, one another creating a whole that's far more than the sum of the parts. You can remove any single node, in this case, by debunking a news report or article, and the network remains almost entirely unaffected. And that's the strength of a narrative, like a network. It's robust, it's resilient, or in the words of a thinker most of you will be familiar with, it's anti-fragile. This is distinct from a single lie, which on its own is very fragile. It's very easy to debunk a story, debunk a lie, to catch somebody out. But in the case of a media narrative, and a false media narrative at that, and it's got this network structure, and that has an infrastructure. It's got a backbone. And that backbone lies in people's minds. It takes the form of implicit assumptions, biases, prejudices, and most of all, other narratives. So this is something we saw in the second intifada and something I write about in the book, which is when the New York Times ran a photo, I'm sure most of you on this webinar will remember this, purportedly showing an Israeli soldier senselessly beating an unarmed Palestinian civilian on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There was one problem with the photo, that Palestinian civilian being beaten wasn't a Palestinian at all. He was an American Jew. He was a yeshiva student named Tuvia Grossman, who was inches from being lynched by a Palestinian mob. The soldier was actually fending off the mob with a stick, mind you, not even with a rifle. That episode could be seen as one minor error. Wrong photo, wrong caption, whatever might have happened, no big deal, we move on. But when you consider that in the background of the photo, there's a clearly visible gas station You've got to pause. It surely can't be that the many New York Times editors under whose eyes this article and its photo passed could have believed that there's a pause gas station on the Temple Mount. Of course they don't, and they didn't. But it was their implicit assumptions, their biases, their prejudices about the conflict that blinded them to this glaring fact. It literally made the gas station disappear just as it did regarding the truth of the events being shown in the photo. But the bigger point is that this dynamic between two archetypes, which is an Israeli aggressor and his Palestinian victim, was the deeper narrative, which enabled the Times to build another layer onto the story. And this was really important because that second layer was the claim that it was Ariel Sharon who sparked the second intifada. 
in the article illustrated so neatly by the Tuvia Grossman photo and its erroneous caption, the reporter, Deborah Sontag, flatly stated that, quote, on Thursday, Mr. Sharon strode into a very fragile situation. His visit set off a dynamic of confrontation that with funerals being scheduled for the Palestinian victims who will be viewed as martyrs has now taken on a life of its own. This, mind you, was a news report in which the reporter claimed Palestinians will be considering these victims to be martyrs. Sorry? So this was not the only article that would lean on this claim that Sharon ignited the Intifada. On that day alone, this is one day of reporting, September 30th, 2000, the Times ran no less than three other new news articles and an editorial with the same claim about the start of the Intifada. In one piece, this time started, the, the Times stated that, quote, pitched street fighting provoked by the defiant visit of the rightist Israeli opposition leader, Irish Sharon, to the plaza outside the ancient mosques atop Jerusalem's old city, et cetera, et cetera. In another article, the Times said, the violence that started after right-wing Israeli politician Ariel Sharon, a figure of hatred for Palestinians, visited a site in Jerusalem's old city. In another article, it similarly stated, the fierce fighting was set off by the defiant visit of a right-wing Israeli leader, Ariel Sharon. And just for good measure, the Times' editorial stated, the Sharon visit led to a series of confrontations that culminated in bloodshed. That's a lot of what we might call bolding of the fact. And remember, this is one day of reporting by the, by the Times. One newspaper on one day, three articles making the same claim and an editorial making that same claim. The thing is, we know that's not quite true. It's possible that Sharon's visit was a contributing factor to the start of the Intifada, maybe. But we also know that the Palestinian leadership had planned the Intifada well in advance. And in the words of Marwan Barghouti, Sharon's visit was just an opportune tactic of uniting the various Palestinian factions so that the planned violence would spread beyond Jerusalem. And spread it did. So it would seem like this big bombastic claim about this huge chain of events one that had big consequences for Israelis, for Palestinians, and for the region alike would be enough. We could leave it at that. But when we return to the idea that a media narrative is a network, and we realize that networks are self-strengthening, meaning the more nodes or false claims in this case that there are, the more we will, the more there will be. What we realize is that it's almost inevitable that more false claims are added. And in this case, the next false claim was a really big one. It was the lie that Israeli soldiers shot and killed in cold blood an innocent Palestinian boy named Mohammed al-Dura. This false claim, the false claim that Sharon ignited the Intifada was big enough and it was bold enough and it was really quite greasy, if you will, in the sense that it lubricated the rest of the narrative. But Sharon was already known to New York Times readers as a, as a right-wing Israeli politician. And in this sense, his visit to the Temple Mount was a sort of politics as usual. It wasn't, you know, as, it wasn't a shock. It was sort of expected. But when you factor in the claim that Israeli troops murdered an innocent Palestinian boy, that's no longer politics. That's a symbol. 
And that's exactly what the Times labeled Aldora's death, just days after the incident, before any investigation could be launched, and never mind before it could be completed. And the reason is because the symbol was just too perfect for the Times to resist. They grabbed it, and they grabbed it really fast, and they held onto it. But again, we have to come back to the, this idea that a big false narrative is a network. It depends on other nodes, or in this case, on other narratives. The foundational claim here was that Sharon, or in effect Israel, had quote unquote, ignited the violence. So if an innocent Palestinian boy were to be an archetype of Palestinian victimhood, then the entirety of the fighting, like the entirety of the conflict, had to be one of Palestinian victimhood and Israeli aggression. So you see that the foundational premise was set and then this top layer of the boy's death was built on top of it. It should really though come as no surprise that the New York Times reporters who authored the Sharon Temple Mount claims were also the ones who authored the claims about Mohammed Aldura and his, his death. And in this case, what we see is that there weren't any checks and balances. And that is in part because the two primary reporters on both of these stories, Deborah Sontag and William Orm were married. So there was a, you know, a, at very least a conflict of interest there. But that's sort of a lesser point. Um, what we really see is that it, it wasn't just two reporters. It wasn't just an article or two. It was dozens of news reports, numerous reporters, including the infamous Judy Miller, who chimed in with her own claims about Aldora and the symbol of Palestinian victimhood he now literally embodied, as well as the roots of the conflict and the start of the Intifada. She echoed those same claims, just as many other New York Times reporters, columnists, and other figures at the newspaper, and other newspapers, of course, had done. So the thing I would really want you to glean from this is that building a media narrative, in particularly a, a false media narrative is not easy. It's a heavy lift. It requires coordination. It requires resources and it requires a lot of support. It requires a lot of hammering away again and again and again at the same claim each time from a different angle. And this is what we saw right up until the day before news broke that the story was not true with the Russian bounties reporting. It wasn't a single article and then silence from the New York Times. It was, if we just do a quick scan, articles, news reports from June 26, 2020, June 28, June 29, June 30, July 1, July 3rd, July 13th, July 14th, and most recently, April 15, 2021, which all carried claims about this story. And the Russia bounty reports were written by nearly a dozen reporters. The claims they made were included in news pieces that had nothing to do with them, such as the July 2014 piece about the deaths of three Marines in Afghanistan. In, these, in this article, there was no evidence linking Russia, Russian bounties to the deaths of the Marines. But despite this, the headlines still blared, three Marines, now focus of Russia, Russian bounties investigation, show the costs of an endless war. And what we see here is that there are major narratives and minor narratives. We see in this case, the major narrative is that in the words of the former New York Times publisher, these wars are quote unquote misbegotten, they're illegitimate. 
And the minor narrative is that in this case, Russia is putting hits out on US troops, but it's a, it's a dynamic. It works in both ways. So like with the Intifada, the symbolic value of that minor narrative that the Marines are killed gives real force to the more nebulous but far-reaching claims that the war is unwinnable and so has already been lost. It's, it's the pointy end to the spear and the shaft is that bigger narrative, the bigger claim that kind of drives it all forward. So just to sum up, what we what we really want to understand with this is that fake news is a, fake news is a buzz term. It's it's something that we're all kind of saying, talking about, but it says everything. It says nothing all at once. But when we kind of step back away from the buzz term, we see what false media narratives are and how they work. And the most important thing, from my point of view, after having looked at this topic and and studied it as long as I have, is that. False media narratives are always the product of an institution, never a single reporter or a single article. They require a lot of coordination, a lot of collaboration, and a lot of buy-in from lots of different people. And the real takeaway here is that when it comes to the question of fighting fake news, we have to do it on an institutional level. Attempts to reduce journalistic malfeasance to a few errors or a single reporter can't be allowed to stand. We have to begin to embrace institutional accountability in the realm, in the realm of the news media if we have any chance of fighting fake news. And that's makes that to me makes good sense and I hope it does to you too. It's because it's the institution's credibility that empowers false media narratives to spread. And when the narratives are revealed to be falsehood, it's the same institutions that must be held accountable and in certain cases, even culpable. So I will leave it at that. Thank you very, very much for being here. And thanks again to Middle East Forum for this wonderful opportunity. And I think we're gonna turn it over now to questions and answers. All right, thank you so much. We learned so much. Uh, the first question is, why does the New York Times have this bias? Are they anti-Semitic or have an agenda? Or can they truly be only ignorant and clueless? That's a great question. And I think that's the question that in the case of the, the New York Times in particular really gets to the heart of the matter. Um, I don't think they're anti-Semitic. I think that's that might be a bridge too far. And I definitely don't think they're clueless. I think it lies somewhere in between. I think it's a question of um, understanding the New York Times as a dynasty. This is a company it's a, it's a very valuable company. I think the market capitalization is close to eight or nine billion dollars today. It's a very powerful company and it's owned by a very small number of people. And it's been that way for 120 years since Adolf Ox bought the New York Times from Henry Raymond. Um, when you put that much power in the hands of so few people without any checks and balances, things go really wrong. And what I've seen is that the mistakes, the errors, the malfeasance, the ill intent or whatever it might be, get magnified over time. And I think that's what, what we've seen and what we're seeing is that it's never just one thing or the other. It's never just interest, meaning prestige or money or power. And it's never just ideology. It's always a mix of the two. And that's what we've seen more recently with the 1619 project is that the interest and the ideology are, are locked together. There is some ideology there. There is some kind of woke ideology, but that woke ideology is also, I think that there's an awareness that the audience of the times or what they believe to be the future of their audience, which is younger and more leftist, 
is embracing those ideas. So they have run into the arms of this ideology and I think it's to the great detriment of the newspaper. Thank you. So to your knowledge, did the Times editors pay any attention to article de debunking this, its reporting, especially those in online publications that are a little smaller, like the American Thinker, the New English Review, or do you think they just ignore them? I think they ignore them. I think they, um, I think they have to ignore them in one sense because the New York Times is so unique among news outlets. It's so high profile, it's so important that the level of criticism is probably overwhelming. I mean, I, I really wouldn't want to be on the other end of this kind of criticism. It's, it's really constant. Um, so on a practical level, I think they ignore it. But I also think that the times sort of to what I was what I was talking about in terms of building a media narrative and that networked effect, which the network exists in people's minds, including in the minds of people who work at a news organization like the New York Times. They believe these things to be true. And even in cases where they're shown to be patently false, like with the 1619 Projects more outlandish claims, they still are able to rationalize the falsehoods because they have shifted the notion of what truth means. And this is something we see with the intersection of uh, critical theory, which states that truth is what serves a certain kind of political end, in, in this case, freeing people from so-called oppression. That is true, and it may be more true than a, what we would call a fact. So. I think it's a combination of um, ignoring it on a practical level and then willful ignorance or willfully accepting something that is not quite right. And, and that's where things go really wrong. And that's what we've seen time and again, including with the famous or infamous Walter Durante case where the New York Times refused to return the Pulitzer in 2005, despite the fact that their own consultant had told them to do so. So they, they were easily able to rationalize that as well. Thank you. So in the news, a caption under a picture, a one minute statement on TV often doesn't provide the full background. How can we, the audience, get the full story? Yeah, that's a, also a great question. I, I was talking about this question with a friend who is a former New York Times staffer and used to rely exclusively on the Times and maybe one or two other sources to get her news way back when in the innocent days of you know the early 2000s. And today she doesn't. Today she is actively searching for facts on topics that are important to her. So I think we've switched kind of modalities where we were once much more browse. You would browse the New York Times, you would browse CBS or NBC or, or what have you. And I think the, that if you are really trying to ascertain what is true, you have to search. You have to switch that mode and start looking for the facts, start finding ways to corroborate, start using your intuition. And if something doesn't pass the smell test, then it might not be true. And you have to dig a little deeper. And that's exactly what I did with this book. It's how the book was born. Is I, I read that Poland invaded Germany, according to the New York Times' reporting from that day in, in 1939. And it was beyond belief. And I dug and I dug and I dug and the truth 
I got closer and closer to the truth. And that's, I think, what we're all trying to do, including journalists. I mean, this is what journalists are really good at. They're good at digging for the truth. And when they do their jobs faithfully, which 99% of journalists do, they present us something that resembles the truth. I mean, we're never going to get the pure objective truth, but we can come really close. And I think that's the mindset that we as readers need to adopt, which is a, almost a journalistic mindset today. Thank you. So how do you envision holding institutions accountable and culpable for their actions? That's a very good question. And I think that's something we, we need to explore as a society because, you know, we, we entrust journalism with such an important role in our society and rightly so. I mean, the, the epigraph in the beginning of my book is from Thomas Jefferson, who says something to the effect that if he could choose a situation in which we had a government but no newspapers, or newspapers but no government, he would definitely choose the latter, meaning he would rather have a newspaper than a government. And that speaks to this notion of the fourth estate, that we really, really need the news media. It's essential to a democracy or probably to any kind of civil society. But we don't hold that institution to the same level of accountability and the same kind of examination that we put toward um, some institutions or, or fields like medicine or law. So to enter medicine or law, you've got to do a lot of things. You have to take a lot of exams. You have to pledge yourself to the Hippocratic Oath and to the system of, of law, the justice system, in order to be a part of that system. But there's nothing like that in journalism. To be a journalist, you can just say, I'm a journalist. And it's not to say that we need to start imposing government constraints and restrictions. I don't think that's what we want to do. But I think as a society, we need to start making our, our norms, our mores, our ethics regarding journalism much more clear, more explicit, more codified. And I think that's something that news, in, news institutions or news organizations should begin to do on their own. I mean, from my point of view, I would really love to see one day the journalistic equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath. And I think we can start there just by holding to a standard that we all agree on. So we can at least all speak the same language. Um, until then, I think it's a matter of, to the last question, educating yourself about the facts, speaking up on social media, participating in these conversations, and doing your best to keep it civil, to keep it grounded in reality, even when others may not be doing the same thing, to not pick up the, the truth as, as an instrument, as a weapon, but to always stay true to the ideal of the truth, which is something that we are trying to approximate. We're trying our best to serve it rather than having it serve us. Understood. And can you explain the false narrative concerning WMDs in Iraq? Yes. Um, it, that was a, a very complicated situation, at least concerning the New York Times, and that's what I know most about. But it was a very strange dynamic because the New York Times, as I think most of us would be um, would acknowledge, is sort of center left and maybe sometimes left and maybe sometimes far left. Um, despite this, when they brought in a new editor of the newspaper at the time, his name is Howell Raines, who came in with this gung-ho attitude about getting Pulitzers, because that's how you really distinguish yourself as a newspaper in media. 
you get Pulitzers, you get scoops, you get big stories. And that's what he wanted to do. Um, and part of those, those stories were about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I mean, that was the thing everybody was talking about, not just in the media and government in daily life. That, that was a huge question. And this was one of those things where the proverbial cart was put in front of the horse. It was as if the Times, the editors, whoever it was reporting, Judy Miller was obviously the biggest name in this reporting, had come to the conclusion somehow that they were there. Or, or perhaps it was that they needed the scoop so badly that they just were willing to believe the most thinly sourced claims about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So they built this case over months and months and months. It, it wasn't, again, it wasn't just one article. It was a series of articles. It was numerous reporters. And it was sort of all topped off by the sort of big reveal that Judy Miller had seen the source of this great story of where the weapons of mass destruction were buried in Iraq, pointing to the ground. The thing was she couldn't get within something like a hundred feet of the guy and she had no idea who he was. She just had to accept that he was a guy who knew something and that what he was saying was true. And when we all realized that it was false, that's when the story blew up. But what we have to look back at is the dynamic there is that the New York Times was really eager for big scoops, for Pulitzers, for, for getting this kind of breaking news that would set it apart because it had a new editor who was very I think we lost you. Oh. All right, yes, I guess uh, we lost Mr. Rinsberg. Um, so we have come to the close of our webinar and as for his book, it will be coming out this year. And I know a few people were asking where they could find it. Uh, so yeah, it hasn't come out yet, but it will. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update with Ashley Perry. And thank you all again for joining us and I hope you have a great day.